You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so pleased that you are listening. We have become so used to hearing about events getting cancelled that I thought we'd start this week's show with some good news about an annual October arts event that is not being cancelled. This weekend is usually the Boone County Art Show at Central Bank of Boone County, an event that regularly sees 200 artworks dropped off on Friday evening for the two-day show in the bank's lobby and ground floor areas. Back in the summer, when the bank was weighing up the pros and cons of holding the show in a pandemic, it was decided that the show in its usual format just couldn't go ahead. It was too risky. But there is a huge love for the show amongst the bank staff, so they came up with a solution. A smaller show that would only occupy the front lobby and the ground floor gallery that would feature the Boone County All-Stars, new works by artists who had won a first-place ribbon over the last decade. And rather than just displaying the show for a single weekend, the works will be on display from next week through December the 5th. As always, the show is open to the public at no cost, and if you see something you like, all the works are also for sale, with all proceeds going to the artist and the Columbia Art League. On today's show, I'm going to be chatting to two artists who both have new art shows going into real spaces. Jenny McGee at William Woods University's Mildred Cox Gallery and Anastasia Pottinger at the Columbia Art League. And after fully immersing ourselves in the world of fine art, I'll be catching up with filmmaker Robert Green to find out how the documentary film industry is navigating the pandemic. So stay with me for the next hour. Let's start our tour today with a chat with the artist Jenny McGee. A new show opens at William Woods University's Mildred Cox Gallery this week, but because of COVID, the show is only open to the college's students and faculty. But the good news is that the exhibit will have its virtual format launch starting from next Monday, October the 12th. And here to tell us more about it is the featured artist, my old friend, Jenny McGee. Hello, Jenny, and thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Hello, Diana. It's super great to hear your voice. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Now, your new show is called Special Midwest Places, and at least some of the works may be familiar to people who have, say, dined at Main Squeeze or purchased cards at Poppy or visited All Street Studios. But for those who haven't seen them, describe the works that comprise your new show. So there is over 50 pieces in this show that really exhibit a vast array of different special places that surround us here in the Midwest. I'm intrigued by so many 
places that are around us, including our Missouri State Parks and places of business that are hidden gems in our community, such as the Broadway Diner and all sorts of different locations have inspired me to create artworks of these locations that surround us here. And some of them are churches, such as the Bon Femme Baptist Church, which they commissioned me to create a piece for them that to celebrate their 200th year anniversary. They were founded in 1819. And some other pieces, such as the Francis Quadrangle, really inspired me and was commissioned by Robin and Carolyn Winokur to really celebrate these really cool historical centers that we have among us. One, you know, the quad right on the Mizzou campus. And it just has been such a neat journey of a variety, a melting pot of different places, really. <laughs> do you choose always iconic places or do sometimes you choose out of the way places that just speak to you personally? Oh, you know, um, definitely both. There's been a combination of iconic as well as personal places. You know, the whole series started about three years ago. I think it was a couple climbing places that were very personal to my to my husband and I and a couple gl- close friends that are just so remote and out of the way and there's no way like the general public would know <laughs> where these places are but they have such beautiful and special features to them and um, some personal meaning so uh, I wanted to capture those in in the form of artwork and also to be able to share how how neat these places are to the general public so that one day maybe if they had a chance they could take a trip and visit visit something new these new works are very very different than maybe what people know you for kind of very flowing and colorful abstract works for these works really your main tool is a pair of scissors rather than a paintbrush so talk (laughs) a little bit about your process for creating these works Definitely a different take and um, <laughs> a direction from what I have typically done in the past. But it was interesting to me because I found a just a surge of inspiration to express and explore special landmarks, but kind of places that could be represented still using my abstract painting combined with paper collage and digital media. I wanted all those different techniques that I've been playing around with for the past 20 years to come together. And so typically in the background of the posters that you'll see on exhibit at the university are my abstract pieces that I have photoshopped in in, and embedded into the paper collages. So um, it's kind of a, a combination and merging of all the mediums that I've experimented with. But For sure, the originals, when I'm cutting the paper, uh, become these these really tactile textural collage pieces. And that's kind of that's how how it begins is with the paper collages. And then when it's trans when I create them into the poster pieces, then it becomes a piece of digital art that combines a digital image of the abstract paintings. (laughs) Does that make sense? <laughs> right. They're very layered. There's lots of kind of layers within them. That's right. They're like multimedia collages, really, the the printed. So there's two different mediums and directions um, happening. There's the original collage that somebody could actually take the pieces apart, you know, and feel the tactile nature of them. And then 
what is on display at the gallery are the flattened digital images of those collages combined with abstract paintings. So the original works, the ones that you have physically layered together with the different pieces of paper and cloth, do you still own those? Or those have all been sold. And so what you have left are the, all the digital copies of the works. Many people do own the originals. Um, however, I still have quite a few originals as well. And there are two hanging originals at the show. There are two large tigers that are the largest collage piece that I've done and also integrated diamonds, real diamonds in the eyes of the tigers, which is kind of cool to see. Those will be a bit more expensive than the others, maybe. Those are. (laughs) (laughs) You heard the price go up. (laughs) Right, (laughs) ka-ching. So going back to when you first started painting, because I remember meeting you probably back in, I don't know, 2010, 2011, and your works were were so different then. They were all trees, I think. I remember loving them. And and then you've changed, like many artists. I mean, I've just watched your work change over the years, which is always really fascinating to watch an artist change and develop over time. But your whole painting career really began back in El Salvador. And you'd gone there for a, what, a three-month honeymoon and ended up basically staying for seven years. <laughs> and at that time, you said that painting was a dream. And your impetus to start painting was in response to ongoing panic attacks. And to those of us who know you, your work is, you're so intuitive. Your work is so calming and so flowing. And so there's such a juxtaposition to think that this all started from something that was not calming to you, quite the opposite. How did you feel when you faced that first blank canvas and started your journey? Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Well, When I reflect back to my time in El Salvador, it certainly was a time of learning. I grew up in a small town and didn't have the opportunity to travel much. And so this was the first experience I had living out of the country, living amongst people who were different than me and also in a different language that I only knew four words of at that (laughs) time and had to learn a whole new language. And so culturally, it was the most amazing and incredible experience that I was absorbing and um, and then also there were emotions of fright and fear in being a stranger in a strange land. And so part of my healing of, of that anxiety and stress was to create artwork and also to create artwork in a way that it was almost like a visual diary. It was um, a documentation of what I was seeing as well as feeling in that experience during that time living in Central America. And I would say that's when art became this real tangible tool for me to express my emotions and not hold them and harbor them inside of myself, but to really use color and texture and what I was seeing around me and apply that into a tangible form so I could could essentially release. I'm always very interested in artists' choice of color, particularly when it comes to emotions. We all choose different colors. Different colors mean different things to all of us. Again, looking back on those first paintings, was there a particular palette, color palette that you were using or were you a little bit of everything? Um, In those very first paintings, I think of a series that I created of uh, 20 paintings of what I was learning about the culture in El Salvador. And that was a very, I think, visual 
colorful reflection of the culture there, which oftentimes was very bright colored, bold colored, reds and primary colors. And so in that first initial series, that was my testing series. I tested myself. I said, if I can create a series of 20 paintings and still want to paint after that, then maybe I should be a painter. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so that that initial series was very bright and bold. But then I would say what merged after that was kind of an obsession over blues, blues and greens and cool colors, really, that was speaking to me, that color palette in a time where I was having a lot of anxiety and stress and some panic attacks. So the blues uh, helped, I think, me reflect a sense of calm that I really wanted to feel that I really wanted to approach and hold on to. When I think of you and your work, I think of blue greens. That definitely is the palette that mm. I feel like surrounds you and that, <laughs> that I, I associate with you. When you were in El Salvador, you met a young man called Douglas. Can you talk a little bit about him and how your time with him influenced you as an artist? Oh, yes. Douglas, Douglas was an incredible person that I had um, the honor of meeting through a mutual friend of ours who worked with a gang recovery program. And at that time, during that 20-piece testing El Salvador series, there was a vision and an idea that came to me to collaborate with a gang member. And Douglas was a gang member in his past, and he's not anymore, but in his past he was. And I really wanted to collaborate with Douglas and create a painting together that was a shared experience. And this this particular painting started off just a red canvas that I textured with a lot of clay and mud from the local area. And I asked Douglas, I said, would you like to take this painting and uh, shoot it? (laughs) And I know this sounds really bizarre, Douglas, but would you be interested in this? And he said, absolutely. And he took it to a, a local shooting range and shot it. And when we came back together, I asked him what, what was his experience with that painting. And he said to me, the bullet holes were not only a physical breakthrough of the canvas, but a metaphorical breakthrough of me stopping the cycle of violence in my life. He said it was very hard to pull that trigger because he had since recovered from a violent lifestyle. But for him, it was a reflection, you know, the red in the canvas represented the bloodshed of his country. And El Salvador had a very horrible civil war not too long ago. And also the bloodshed of his past, that's what the red represented to him. But then the the bullet holes were this stopping of violence in his life, this breakthrough of, of, you know what, my life can change, my life can take a different direction. And so you know, long story short, he he was able to get out of the gangs and um, start working for an organization called Homies Unidos, um, United Homies in El Salvador, helping other gang members leave that that cycle of violence in their own life. Did he use art as part of that process after his time with you? You know, he on a follow up conversation, he said he did um, not with guns, but he, he did use art and color as a, a mode of, of therapy, like with some of the gang members. And, and then also part of the Homies Unidos program was job training as well. So he helped a lot of kids get different vocational training so they could have skills. 
What happened to that piece of art that you created with Douglas? It is sitting in the basement of Broadway Christian Church right now in storage. <laughs> like, yeah, the, that whole series is in storage at the moment. When you look at it and you think back to those times, what feelings do you have? Um, when I look at that painting in particular? Yeah. Or, um, I, I feel a sense of um, humility. I sense um, also this sense of uh, pride is not the right word. It's not pride. It's it's the feeling of like awe, like wow, um, this experience will stay with me forever, and hopefully was an experience that would stay with Douglas forever, and and be impactful to, you know, anybody that might observe this piece or might understand the story. And so it's just kind of like a feeling just, it was kind of, it was a feeling of being honored to have this experience with, with a new friend. Have you done any subsequent work working with gang members and using art to heal? Um, not in particular with gang members, but I have for the past probably 10, 12 years been working individually with people, but then also collectively in groups helping people utilize art as a, as a means for helping um, with their emotions or wherever they're at in their place of life. I, I'm not an art therapist, so I have to, you know, tread those waters lightly, but um, I do very much believe when I teach classes, whether it's a group or workshop, that, you know, art can speak to our hearts in so many levels and help us to to express. Now, you published a couple of years ago your own art journals in a book called Self-Expression and Art Journal Healing and Positivity Edition. What is the key takeaway you want to impart to people that use the book or work through the book? Well, one of my, um, that's a great question. One of my pet peeves is hearing people say, well, I'm not an artist. <laughs> I can't, I can only draw a stick figure. <laughs> <laughs> And sure, you know, they might feel that genuinely and I want to honor, you know, their feelings with where they're at in that moment. But I genuinely believe that God has given all of us the ability to create. And once we can bypass and get past the comparison that oftentimes we do mm. and we compare ourselves to others, we or we reflect on maybe that C we got in art in junior high and which I did. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we all have those memories, right? And I just, if somebody were to use that journal, or if I had a message to share with the world or with people, it's that you were given a gift of creativity in some form or another, and you, you can empower yourself to use that creativity. And it doesn't have to look like your neighbors or or whoever, it can just look like yours. And that that's okay. I think, and maybe this is different today, because I know so many fabulous art teachers that I think teach art differently than when I was at school. But it was this idea of, here's a thing, whether it's a shoe or a tree or a person, and your job is to recreate that thing that you see. And if it you know, if the perspective was wrong or the colors didn't work out or whatever was wrong with it, that 
was wrong. And there wasn't this kind of freedom of expression of of just putting color down and seeing where color flows and seeing how that makes you feel. It mm. was about recreating real things. And I think that for many people of of my generation, when I'm talking about me personally here, I mean, that was it. I got a C for a shoe that had a bad perspective. And I loved, loved, loved art. And it took one bad grade. And that was it. I was done. Why are we so fragile about art making? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes, we are. We have fragile hearts and it's a part of ourselves. I think that really represents our inner child and our ability to be free and unbound from society's constructs or people's opinions. And so I think once you start to work on that, then you free yourself to be able to create and form and to express and to make art how you were meant to make art. And when you came back to art, when you're in El Salvador, did you feel a pressure to create things you could see around you or was it just immediately for you, your intuition was just to put color down on, on a blank space? Well, I think um, like what you mentioned earlier, when I first landed, I did create a lot of trees. Like trees were that real pivotal. You were good at trees. <laughs> Thank you. They were a symbol though. They were a real big symbol for me and I just got tree obsessed and they became the symbol of growth and freedom and redemption and community and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was, you know, I was recovering from cancer at that time. And so trees, there was a quote from brother Lawrence that said the secret to the life of a tree is that it remains rooted in something greater and deeper than itself. And that, that quote stuck with me and, and that, that symbol of the tree, I think that's where it really blossomed and needed to take off art wise for, for me personally. But yes, after the trees, then things got a little more abstract <laughs> and less, yeah, less realistic for sure. And now you've kind of come full circle and with collage and with your with your works, your iconic places and, and local places works, you've kind of gone back to much more realism again. Mm-hmm. But, but you're still doing both. So you kind of have these two bodies of work that you're doing simultaneously. Are there some days that you wake up and you think today, I want to do a collage of a real place and other days you think, nope, just want to put color down on a canvas. So do you alter each day? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. I fear burnout. Like that's one of my fears, I would say is is burning out. So the way I remedy that is to follow the gut instinct of the day. (laughs) And of course, sometimes there's deadlines that need to be met and, you know, I have to meet those. But then in other times, I'm just like, okay, well, if I'm sick of painting, if I'm sick of color, if I'm sick of abstract painting, what is it that I need to do? And sometimes it's like, go play in the mud, go throw a rock in the river, go on a hike, you know, do something different that kind of gives you that space, that necessary space that you need to appreciate, come back and appreciate what it is that you have in front of you. So all of the works, you have 60 works, I believe, that are in the William Woods show. Is that the biggest showing of your works of this series? Definitely. I think ever, all time ever, (laughs) biggest show I've ever done. (laughs) And I got it all stuffed in one car. It was impressive. (laughs) And all of the works are, you said, they're digital versions of it. So that means that they are all buyable if people are interested in buying them. Definitely, yes. The um, the collages, I believe, the framed collages are between one twenty five and one fifty, and then there's also original 
abstract pieces and as well as those two original collage tigers that are for sale. So it's probably over 40 pieces of the printed small framed pieces and then about six pieces that are uh, of originals. And people on an ongoing basis, this I don't know how long this shows up for. When does it end? Is it up through December? It is up until November 12th, October 12th to November 12th. But if people want to get hold of you or buy works from you, is there a website that you have that they can go to? Absolutely. People could visit my website at artistjennymcgee.com. I also have a Facebook page at Jenny McGee Art. And also if they want to have lessons with you, because I think you do art expression sessions with adults and with children, that also people can access that via your website too. Absolutely. Yep. I loved recently, I don't know if you're still doing them on Facebook, but you would have like a time-lapse camera. And so you would start a painting and then people could just watch it, watch it develop over the course of an oh, hour thanks. or whatever. Thank you for watching that. Yeah. They were very soothing. Oh, good. I hope to do a lot more of those during winter time as, as things cool down. I can foresee doing a lot more Facebook Lives. Perfect. Well, Jenny McGee, it is a delight to chat to you. And it's been so long since I have seen you or really anybody. So it is lovely <laughs> to catch up <laughs> by sound, at least, if not and not by sight. Jenny McGee's new show called Special Midwest Places opens at William Woods University's Mildred Cox Gallery online from next Monday. And I don't have an exact address yet, but if you Google William Woods and Mildred Cox Gallery, I'm sure it will take you right there. Jenny, thank you again so much. And I really hope that I get to see you one day soon. I hope we get to see each other too. Such a pleasure to be with you, Diana. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Bye-bye. Staying in the fine art world, our next stop on today's tour is the Columbia Art League. This week, another new fine art show opened in the Columbia Art League's South Gallery, this one by one of Columbia's best-known photographers, Anastasia Pottinger. The show has a brilliant title, Awful slash Cute, and here to tell us more about how it came to be is Anastasia. Hello, Anastasia. Hello, Diana. Thanks for having me on today. I always feel like I should call you Anastasia in, you know, formal settings as opposed to Stacy. Would you prefer Stacy? I remember it well, the time that I told you <laughs> that you needed to refer to me as Anastasia in public, and you could call me Stacy in private. You can go with whatever you would like to. Well, I do like Anastasia. It's such a beautiful name. So I, I will go with Anastasia for today's show. <laughs> Fantastic. So before we get into your show, I thought I remembered reading or hearing that you were totally out of the photography game. You'd sold or given away your cameras, but here you are with a photography show at the Columbia Art League. So are you resurrecting your career or did it really never end? <laughs> That's a good question. I did not sell my cameras. So I do own my cameras and one portable light and a few things that I didn't sell. But I did, I gave, uh, I sold most of my equipment to my high school best friend's daughter who is starting her career in photography. So I'm no longer doing commercial photography, like family portraiture or senior pictures, although I have a few folks that I promised I would do senior pictures for this year. And I, the way this show came about is about a year ago, maybe, when the South Gallery was created, Kelsey, the director of Columbia Art League, asked me if I would do, you know, sign up to do a show in the coming year. And I said, oh, sure. Yeah. By next October, that would be great. No problem. 
So that, I was wondering that, whether the show came before the gallery space or the gallery space came first, and then you had to scramble to think of what the show was going to be. <laughs> well, exactly. What happened, yeah, is that at the very end of August, Kelsey emailed me and said, hey, so uh, I think um, October 2nd for the day that we should hang your show, I need you to give me the title and the names of the pieces and an artist statement. And I just, my heart just stopped because I thought I... I don't, I don't remember that conversation at all. I do not remember agreeing to do a show. And I said, well, I feel like kind of a punk, but I got, I have these centenarians all framed up and ready to go. You want those? And she very smartly said, no, (laughs) I believe Columbia is over your centenarians. And she said, I would love to see some new work. She would have taken them. So I had jokingly or sort of half seriously about a week or two before that said, oh, I'd love to, I should do a show uh, or a project with kids in masks. Cause I had seen one of my colleagues four year, her four-year-old son in a mask. And I just thought he was adorable. And then I'd seen a couple other kids, you know, and pictures on Facebook. And, and I said that and all these people said, oh, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. And I said, I don't have time to do that. But Kelsey kind of pushed my hand and uh, I had a vacation week coming up and I said, I'll do it. So within the last month, I photographed everybody on my vacation week and got it all organized, printed, framed and hung. I've never done anything quite so fast (laughs) in my life. And I'm really proud of it. I really like it. I think it's a really cool, um, a really cool concept. Well, you say in the show blurb that you wanted to show the boldness or unease naturally represented in children of this age. And of course, wearing masks has made even grown-ups boldly uneasy. What did you sense from the children? Yeah, the actual taking of the pictures or making of the pictures took about 10 or 15 seconds. I told the adults, it'll only take 15 seconds unless you start, you know, want to have a conversation with me, which of course, you know, most of them are people (laughs) I know and we hadn't seen each other in months. So we had these conversations, but mostly I just said, Hey, I'm Stacy. Uh, yeah, stand right there. Okay. Stand however you want. Just look right here. I really just wanted their eyes on the camera. Other than that, I didn't care what they did. And you know, you can see some of them, you know, got their hands on their hips in a little jaunt you know, sidekick there. Some of them are obviously nervous or some of them are very like, yeah, look at me. I know everything. I've got it all together. And you can really tell that just from their very quick stance that they naturally took. You asked the parents to let them wear whatever they wanted. And I particularly love the princess frock paired with a paw print mask and the girl's can t-shirt paired with the Wonder Woman mask. That might win my first prize. Did you get the sense that masks were fun and a fashion statement or was there sadness surrounding them? Oh, yeah, no sadness. Everybody except for the one, I think there was this 16 month old uh, that's in the digital slideshow at the gallery. You have to, if you want to see all of the work, you have to go to the gallery because there's a, an iPad that has the rest of the kids that I photographed but couldn't print and frame because of due to space limitations. There's one little guy who really, and 16 month old shouldn't wear a mask anyway. So he was 
uh, he was not happy about it. But the rest of them, they got to pick their mask. Uh, and they, you know, most of the parents were like, okay, which one do you want to wear? You know, they have like three different ones with unicorns or, uh, you know, a, a fist, power fist, or, you know, whatever it is they wanted. And I said, wear whatever you want. It's, it's completely up to you. What stories did the kids tell you about their mask choice? <laughs> I oh, <laughs> oh man, I'm trying to think. One, you know, a little girl loves unicorns, and so she was pointing out all the the you know, there's unicorns and rainbows on her mask. The poster boy Harrison uh, with all the curls. He had the construction mask and he was like, I have trucks. He's three. So he wanted to hang out, you know, and play. And I wanted to hang out with him. But we have to keep our distance. What did the parents tell you about their motivation for wanting photographs of their kids in masks? I don't know, actually. (laughs) We didn't talk that much about, about that. Like if there was a reason why they wanted, except that they wanted, I don't want this to sound big headed, but did they want, you know, they wanted to be a part of the project, knowing that I might, you know, do something with it, or they wanted, they thought it's a good idea. And they'd love to, you know, loan their kids to me to, you know, document this time in history. Yeah, I mean, if Annie Leibovitz turned up on your doorstep, you wouldn't say no to her, would you? So I mean, you are our equivalent of Annie Leibovitz. So that must be probably probably something in (laughs) that. That's too much. That's too much. Well, we are already out of time, but thank you so much, Anastasia Pottinger. You can see her new photography show, Awful Cute, at the Columbia Art League's South Gallery through October the 31st. And you can also see the 16 images that are framed and on the wall at the Columbia Art League's website. And that's at columbiaartleague.org forward slash awful cute. But as Anastasia said, if you want to see all of the images, you need to go to the gallery and scroll through the iPad. Are there other hundreds? No, (laughs) I think there is 24. Okay, that's doable. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anastasia. Thank you. After two art venues, I think it's time to change gear a little bit. So our next stop is the world of film. My last guest today is the filmmaker-in-chief at the University of Missouri's Murray Center for Documentary Journalism, Robert Green. True False Film Fest attendees may also remember his films, Bisbee 17, Kate Plays Christine, and Actress from past years. He has been a member of the awards board for the Sundance Film Festival and last year won the University of Missouri Chancellor's Award for Outstanding Research and Creative Activity in the Performing Arts and Humanities. It is a delight to have the chance to chat to filmmaker Robert Green. Hello, Robert. Hello, how are you? I am well and really privileged to have the chance to chat with you because I've seen you on the stage and I've seen your films and and now I get to talk to you by myself for 20 minutes. It's fantastic. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be on. So the idea that we live in a post-truth world is pretty much ubiquitous after the last four years of sex scandals, lies and fake news, and the never-ending abyss of selfie, cell phone, digital videotape. And I feel so hungry for truth. Is this a documentarian's dream world? (laughs) That's a funny question. You know, I I don't think it's anyone's dream world right now. No, actually, I mean, I think it's presented challenges that are sort of hard to, I'll just put it in the context of students. It's hard to explain to students exactly how we're supposed to make our films when the main sort of rule 
is that documentary filmmakers make their own rules, whereas magazine journalism or news television news journalism or things like that have preset guidelines of how you're supposed to present stories about the real world. Documentary filmmakers, we kind of make up our rules as we go because every situation is so radically different, and the goal of making a movie is completely different than a news story. Um, so what does that mean when you are confronting a challenge where reality itself seems to have collapsed? You know, and, and I, I've answered this question with my own work, actually. Cape Place Christine was made before, before Trump, clearly, and at a time where I thought it was fruitful to have you asking sort of existential questions about the nature of truth. And then Bisbee 17 was made after that, where it was less fruitful to ask those questions and much more fruitful to say something like, what are we going to do with that, with the questioning? You know, what are we going to do with the fact that truth is so slippery? What are we going to do with the fact that our leaders are lying directly to us? That's never been not the case. In fact, Bisbee 17 is about that, but it's so brazen and dumber now. It's a much dumber version of lying to us at all times. So I don't know. I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't I wouldn't say it's a dream world for anyone. I do think it presents challenges, but the nimbleness of documentary filmmaking, hopefully we can rise to those challenges. Are we more susceptible to lies today and how does that feed into how you think about your craft? You know, I think we're less susceptible to lies in some ways. I think we're less susceptible to expertise. We're actually less susceptible to truth in a weird way. I think that the criticism that postmodern thinking about the nature of truth and the very quick version of that is something like documentary films, other things claim to be the truth, but we all know that they're not the truth. And so that's sort of like a, a black hole you can fall down. The idea that that relates to our current political moment, I think there's something to that. And I think the, the sort of skepticism is both healthy and unhealthy. It's healthy in the sense that I do think, generally speaking, most people think uh, the world is full of untruths. You can't believe everything you read on the internet, et cetera. I think those are sort of um, very common thoughts at this point. But then when you see things, you're also questioning, for example, it's a shock when people find out that documentaries are edited, for example, or they, you know, when they hear that we might take someone's words and put them into more logical order, thus taking them out of the way that they were actually spoken, or even further, that we might stage a scene in order to, to say something deeper about the, the story we're telling or the character's truths or et cetera. The fact that those get thrown into the sort of um, post-truth idea I think it makes people sort of question things both constructively, which I always want them to question. I think you should never watch a documentary and not be questioning what you're seeing and how it's put together and why it's put together the way it is. And I think the best films activate your thinking in that front. I think the best films get you to think about those deeper questions while also telling you a story or, or if not telling you a story, giving you some characters that you, you can learn from or feel something from. So I think it's a healthy skepticism. And sometimes I think no one believes anything. And I think that's also a problem where we go so far in the other direction that it's impossible to believe things like a virus may kill you, that a mask could actually save you and things like that. And so it's a messy time in the realm of truth, I think. 
Well, and it's a messy time in terms of just making documentaries too, because we're in the midst of an infectious pandemic. Maybe that's a tautology, but in, in your workplace, proximity and duration are at the heart of the form. So how does documentary filmmaking function for the foreseeable future where you can't be with people in the same way? Well, there's, uh, there's all kinds of attempts to answer that question. And I'm speaking to you from my basement which has become my editing room. I'm in the middle of making a film that we had a shoot scheduled for March, the week that everything collapsed. Right after True False, we had our, our final shoot scheduled for a film that we've been working on for a year and a half at that point. And we've can't, we had to cancel that shoot or postpone that shoot, and we still have not rescheduled that shoot. And that is a very real thing. That means, for example, I'm not submitting my film to Sundance this year. Um, my last two films played at Sundance. That means that the real life struggle of telling the story, in this case, with some survivors of some very serious trauma, we've had to explain and work with them to not lose the momentum that we had sort of built together. And that's very hard because the whole world stopped and reality did collapse as we know it. And therefore we had to stop. And so the, there's really, I mean, there are tons of industry answers to this. I'm, I know a friend of mine is having a shoot this Friday where she's not even showing up. She's directing remotely and it's, she's doing an interview over zoom and there's things like that. And there's all kinds of answers and there's all kinds of ways to do it. I think the bigger questions are that documentary itself has become so much less about I'm going to document your life and so much more collaborative in the last many years, like maybe the last decade to where you really work with people when you're making a film. It's rarely that you're making a film about them. Often you're making a film with them. And so that really does change now. Um, and there's all kinds of ethical uncertainties. There's all kinds of emotional uncertainties for making documentary. And it just becomes so much more intense when literally showing up and putting a microphone on someone and filming them could result in both or either of you uh, being very sick. And so that... It just means, you know, one of the things we cherish the most in documentary is in intimacy. And what, what does that mean when you can't be intimate, you know? So does your film, do you think it carries on? Or can you tell us what it's about? Or is it hush-hush? Yeah, it's a little hush-hush. I mean, it's, it's, we're working with six survivors of abuse, and they're telling versions of their story through directing their own scenes. And so we've been, and they're all based in Missouri. Most of them are based in Missouri and that's the most I'll say, but yeah, it goes on. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm editing now and we're hoping to schedule, we've pushed back the shoot several times. We're hoping to schedule again for the end of the year, before the end of the year, but that it might get pushed to the spring. And then we're sort of questioning that whole thing. Like if it gets pushed to the spring, what does that mean? And, and, and furthermore, I mean, beyond just my situation, the entire industry has, pretty much collapsed um a documentary industry that is and and several festivals were canceled and some of them went online and we then found that the energy of that everyone who's ever gone to true false you know that energy that that incredible feeling of sitting down at the ragtag or at missouri theater right before a screening is started you know that you're about to experience something the filmmakers in the room there's just a, that palpable energy 
that's an amazing experience for audiences. It's it's lifeblood for documentary filmmakers, and because we, you know, a lot of what we do does not get rewarded economically um, as much as the the labor that goes into it. You know, so that entire system is in question right now. I mean, Sundance is most likely to be majority online. True Foss is sort of up in the air. I think they've pushed back their dates mm-hmm, to May. Yeah, to May, and they're you know I I believe that they're going to figure something out because May is a good time to try something. But and the festivals is is just one part of the structure that's really collapsed. Netflix is no longer going to be buying risky, interesting films. They're going to be buying films that are safe that people can binge, and you know, so the the art form itself is being questioned. So it's it's a it's a real point of crisis for all of us in the documentary world, there's people losing jobs. People have left the industry. It's in 2008 when the, when we had the big economic collapse, that was a major moment for the film business. And this is even more severe, I would say. You mentioned Netflix and obviously there's HBO and Apple and Amazon and all of those big organizations that are looking for content. Can you talk a little bit about how documentary landscape had changed maybe before COVID and what the expectations of the audiences and of the buyers are? Well, you know, I, I generally think of it as this, is if big players like you named are are spending money for popular documentaries, and in the last few years they have, um, more or less, uh, it comes and goes. There's there's lean years and and more exciting years in terms of sales. If that's happening it generally means that there's more space for films that are taking more risks. And occasionally those films, I, one of them just premiered this past week, Dick Johnson is Dead by Kirsten Johnson is on Netflix. It's a risk-taking film. It's an innovative film. It's an interesting film. Um, and it's playing on Netflix. That's great, right? And the more movies that get bought up by those bigger names, it, it trickles down. It, it really does. And there's, it means that there's a more vibrant documentary community and even more risky, more, for lack of a better word, artistic films can get made. And they may not command the same attention. They may not command the same dollars, but but there's room for them. The problem now is that it was already sort of shrinking that phenomenon of the trickle-down phenomenon. And Netflix was already sort of focusing a little bit more on in-house productions and a very, and sort of um, their algorithm. Work that specifically can get plugged into the same sort of um, rhythms that that other films can. You know, they're essentially making the same movie over and over again, with some very notable exceptions like Kirsten's movie or Yancey Ford's film, Strong Island, which came out a few years ago and films like that. So that's that was that's already a challenge. It's already a challenge when you get these big buyers and they're getting the success and they're you know, I, I enjoyed Tiger King more or less, but I don't want I don't want to watch Tiger King over and over again, you know, but they have very little incentive to not try to make Tiger King over and over again. So that's a good there's the good, which is the trickle down and there's the bad, which is the commodification of it, which happens in cycles. Basically, you know, there's booms and busts and all that kind of thing. But now in the COVID era, it's the the idea that they would take any risks is is a lot harder to fathom. And so therefore, to find an audience, you're thinking more and more about that algorithm, and then you're making less and less interesting films. Talking of Tiger King, it seems like one of the Netflix effects is the desire to turn what maybe would have been a documentary into a six-part miniseries. How does that 
play out in the independent documentary world? Does that give you, in effect, more work if you hit on the right algorithm? Or does that reduce your artistic integrity somehow? Well, you know, I think there's great series and there's not great series. The truth is, is it opened up economic possibilities. In fact, it's much more viable to pre-sell a series now than it is to sell a feature film. Because not, not surprisingly, the audience for documentary, independent documentaries specifically, and documentaries in general, has always been limited, you know? So a series or the the sort of phenomenon of the of the series which now so many buyers pick up on Netflix being the leader but then there's Apple there's Hulu there's all these Amazon there's all these buyers that are looking for the Netflix series and I think there's been really good ones and there's also been really bad ones like anything artistic integrity the only thing you can speak about in that is I there's a phenomenon really where because the series is now a more viable option than the feature length film you get a lot of series that are stretched to its their limits you know and like you get the four part series that could have easily been a very great feature you know <laughs> that kind of thing and that and that's and that is a phenomenon I think we're seeing a lot of um, but people pitch things and you know, you go where the money is and you go where you can actually get movies made. And if that means turning your would be great 90 minute film into a four part series, you do it. But documentarians, I'd say historically, haven't gone where there's money to be made. You've gone where there's a story to tell and followed your artistic integrity. And so, you know, there was a time before Netflix when those character and idea driven smaller documentaries found small audiences and and that that fed your soul that possibility still exists right i mean certainly but the biggest fear of the covid moment the era is that the feed your soul films which i think is a wonderful way of terming it are just going to be harder and harder to find because there are no movie theaters right now And there's all the talk in the world about how, well, you can always get things online. Well, the eyeballs are going, being pulled in in very specific directions. So that's a little bit of a myth. Yes, there's still, I think there's always innovative work being made. And and that that has been the role of the film festival circuit for such a long time. It's hard to imagine, but some of your favorite true-false films that you've ever seen over the last decade have had very little life outside of that exciting 1200 seat sold out screening at the Missouri theater. And they've, they've got, they bounced around to festivals. They get, maybe they get to go on PBS, POV, something like that, or they, and then, and then they kind of, you know, the filmmaker keeps going and tries to make another film. And those are your, the feed your soul films. And, Imagine a world without Trufos. That's what it feels like right now is that that world, which would be inconceivable considering Trufos is a runaway success. You know, there's 25,000 people that come to that festival. That's a major success. But imagine a world where that doesn't exist. That's what we're actually facing right now. We're actually facing the possibility that a lot of festivals that went online for 2020 simply won't be able to do that for 2021 because the online version of the festival was more or less, you know, with some rare exceptions of failure. So the filmmakers are fighting for those serve your soul kind of movies. We still want to make those. Whether or not we can be supported in making those is another question. 
Well, I think 25,000 people in Colombia still want to see it. So presumably those other festivals and the people that would have gone to them still do want to see it. But if, if documentary film stands on a precipice of uncertainty, how does that change what you teach students of documentary filmmaking? Well, the good thing is I teach my students from the start that making a living in this business is uh, requires a lot of hustle. So this moment doesn't really change that necessarily. I, I mean, we're pretty realistic about, you know, it's it's about finding every possible angle. We get about 20 new students in the Murray Center a year. And our goal is not to create 20 documentary directors. You know, we want to create cinematographers, editors. We want to create people who can work in festivals. We want to create critics, people who work in distribution. And we're, it's amazing. We actually have graduates who work in all. We have graduates who are making films right now. We have graduates who are editing and shooting. We have graduates who are working in distribution or film critics. Already we have graduates doing everything. So that's will continue to be our model because the idea that there would be a sustainable system where 20 new exciting filmmakers come out a year isn't, isn't really right. So it doesn't really change it much, except for we have to be harsher about our realism. But, you know, I, I think one of the things that there will always be need and room and interest in nonfiction film that feeds the soul. It'll always be there. And so we can count on that. And that's, that's, that's a good thing to be able to count on. Knowing what you know now, if you had your time over, would you still choose to pursue a career in documentary filmmaking? Oh, I don't think you have a choice about th <laughs> things like that. I, I, um, I was a student myself and I wrote a screenplay and I brought that screenplay to my friend who was a writer. We were in film classes together and I dropped the screenplay off, got in my car, drove back to my apartment. I was at North Carolina State University. Then I went in the house, immediately got back in the car, drove to his house, took the screenplay and threw it in the garbage <laughs> because I was like, I'll never let you read that. And I just thought it was a total failure, just absolute garbage. And then from that point forward, I was like, well, if I want to make movies, I got to do something different, you know? And for me, the excitement of the meaning of making nonfiction, working with people, trying to find, for me, it's trying to find innovative ways to actually make people's lives better while also challenging notions of truth, challenging what people see on screen, trying to actually make it so if you watch my films, you can maybe be a better at reading the cable news. Maybe you can be better at like thinking about some of these issues of post-truth world that we're living in. Then you also have a, an experience, an emotional experience that, that should come with any kind of work of art. I, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't choose any of that. It's just, I can't not do it. <laughs> so I, yeah, I feel very lucky to be able to make movies that people respond to in some way, even if it's just that one true false screening, but it's, um, it's something I feel privileged to do. So no, I, I wouldn't change anything. So that we end on a, on a happy note, do you see any silver lining or where would you center your optimism for documentary filmmaking looking forward? I just think that the history of documentary is a history of people innovating constantly. Trufoss is the home for so many of those innovative films that it might... 
it might seem a little weird to know that this is the best, this has been traditionally and hopefully will continue to be in the future, the best documentary film festival in the country. And where you're going to see people come in and try things and you're going to, the programmers are going to put in front of you things that are challenging in new ways. And to me, that's just, that's a history that goes back to the beginning of cinema. You know, the first, the very first films were actualities. They were based on reality in some way. And so that won't stop. People will continue. They won't stop making innovative work that, to borrow your term one last time, is to feed the soul. Yeah, I, I think that's not stopping. And I think True Foss is going to come back stronger than ever. And we're going to be watching movies probably all about COVID and <laughs> remem- <laughs> remembering this crazy time. I agree. I don't see True Falls going away. I think there's so much support for the festival, so many brilliant people that are involved and it has established itself so well that it might not be the same in 2021, but at some point it'll be the same again. And I think that it has nurtured huge audiences here in Colombia that do want to see documentary films about interesting people and ideas and poke around in reality and and find out how other people's lives are. So I feel positive about documentary filmmaking in terms of our own locality here in Colombia. Yeah. And I I look forward to seeing your next film whenever. Let's see if I can get it they'll see if I can get it finished. It'll <laughs> I'll let you know. Maybe for True False 2022. <laughs> Robert Green, it has been a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me. is it for another week with a choice of virtual and real life art shows to see plus outdoor movie screenings virtual plays and live music returning to rose musical it feels like we're finding our feet in this new paradigm all the speaking of the arts episodes are available as podcasts which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Jenny McGee, Anastasia Pottinger and Robert Green. Thank you also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song, Restless Heart, at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then... Stay arty, Columbia! <laughs> <laughs>